We've kind of seen a little bit of a, uh, a thread woven through the music this morning and everything, and it really kind of came on strong to me in the early service in that song, The White Flag. Uh, I really like that song, and I like what it represents because my mind went back to December 23, 1952, uh, when my brother Ted was in the Marine Corps, and he's on the front lines of the 1st Marine Division in the Korean War. And there was a young evangelist, uh, 34 years old, by the name of Billy Graham. And uh, he went to the front lines to preach the gospel. And uh, if you ever remember listening to Dr. Graham, one of the phrases he often used was surrender. Surrender to Christ. Surrender. <laughs> and my brother's on the 1st Marine Division on the front lines of battle, and he says, if there's one thing we Marines don't do, we don't surrender. We do not surrender. And a lot of the others were feeling the same way. But then the Spirit of God started to do a great work. And, of course, it all depends to whom you are surrendering. And that's when Ted made this decision uh, to trust Christ. And I, I understand about 90% of the platoon stood to their feet uh, to acknowledge they were surrendering uh, to the Lord Jesus as Savior. Seventy percent of them didn't come home. But uh, as I thought about that white flag image, it it's, has everything to do with surrender. And uh, for the Christian and for the unbeliever alike, uh, that's the message that comes to our heart. That's what comes throughout the book of James, is the idea of surrendering to the Lord. Now, if you have a Bible, we've got our task sent in front of us. Uh, James chapter 3 and James chapter 4. So one chapter is hard enough to get through, but this is uh, two chapters before us today, James 3 and 4. Now, I don't know about you, but when I went through school, I did not like tests and exams. And the reason I didn't like them is because they revealed my ignorance and my lack of preparation and so test always showed me uh, where the weaknesses were. Now, if you were a good student, you couldn't wait for that test and then just beam so brightly because you never had a flaw or any mistake or whatever. But James is offering us a series of tests for the Christian. Now, you notice in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brethren. So he's writing to believers, no question. And they're Jewish believers who have been persecuted, uh, cast uh, out of Jerusalem because of their faith and throughout the Roman Empire. And so he's writing Jewish people who have come to know Christ uh, as their Savior. And then one of the things we like to say as a Christian, uh, hopefully that's true, is I'm walking by faith. I was saved by faith, but now the just shall live by faith. And so James says, is that really true? You're walking by faith? Okay, he said, I'm going to give you some tests. And you've got to score your own paper because you're going to look at these tests and you're going to try to evaluate, let the Holy Spirit evaluate how you're doing in these various tests. Uh, it's my understanding as I study James that he gives us 15 specific tests 
that you can trace through as you move through James. But I've got four Sundays with you, so I've condensed them down into four. And we started a couple weeks ago by looking, first of all, at the test as it relates to yourself or, or ourselves. And he talks about tests, and he talks about temptations, talks about responding to the truth of God's word. And he says, how are you measuring up? Are you really walking by faith? Then we move from ourselves, chapter 2, and we saw last week, where he's talking about what is my relationship to others? You know, how do I treat other people? And even more specifically, how do I treat other people uh, who might be considered uh, those who don't have much influence or much standing in life? How do I respond to those people that can't even benefit me? Uh, so it's really a test uh, concerning uh, color, concerning class, concerning uh, culture, etc. And so, uh, and the real zeroing in has to do with partiality. Do I show partiality to people based upon the externals uh, that they possess? Uh, and then today we're going to look at the basic issues of life, and that's in chapters 3 and 4. And Lord willing, we'll conclude next Sunday with uh, the philosophy of life and the test there in chapter 5. So as we look at this morning at chapters 3 and 4, it seems to me it breaks down into four areas that we can follow along. So if you're in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, he talks about words, uh, my speech, what I talk about. And then he moves into 13 to 18 of chapter 3, and he talks about wisdom. Do I operate my life according to the wisdom of God or the wisdom of man? And then we move into chapter 4, and in verses 1 to 12, he talks about, in the general sense of the word, he talks about worldliness. How do I measure up on the test of am I a worldly Christian? And then he ends it in verses 13 to 17 with talking about the test of do I really desire one and walk in to the will of God. And so that's where we're going this morning. Words, wisdom, worldliness, and uh, the will of, of God. And so the tests are presented to help us see if we're walking by faith. Now, we begin with the first one in your Bibles in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, where he talks about our words. As I was uh, reflecting on this the last few months, I, I could still hear my mom. She's been uh, with the Lord for almost 40 years. But I can still hear her saying as I'm growing up, Harry, bite your tongue. And uh, she didn't mean that literally, obviously. Uh, but I knew exactly what she meant. And it was a figurative sense, but... Don't go there. Don't say that. Bite your tongue. And if I didn't bite my tongue, then I would have my mouth washed out with soap. That was not figurative, by the way. That was literal. And so that's how an instrument, a means to make sure I would bite my tongue and not let things come out there that were unwholesome. Uh, and so... So many times in life, you know, as we move through life, we're talking so much, as we'll see in a minute. And sometimes I can hear myself saying or others saying, you know, I'm going to give that person a piece of my mind. And I'm thinking to myself, 
That's a luxury no one here can afford to do, okay? I don't have enough of a mind to give even a piece of it away. Uh, so I need to look into this test about the words and see where I stack up. Now you notice he begins with a rather strange command in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Now let me just stop there. If I use the word perfect, sometimes we think of there's no flaws, there's no sins, there's no fault. That's not what the Greek word teleos means translated perfect. You could better substitute two words, spiritually mature. That's really what the Greek word means. You're brought to a point of spiritual maturity, not that you don't ever sin or have faults, but to that person who is growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, and he's arrived at a, a certain level of spiritual maturity, only he is able also to bridle uh, his tongue and his whole body. Now, we step back and we say, James, why do you say that? Don't be many teachers. It's pretty simple. If you're a teacher... Uh, and you're using words a lot, you incur a greater accountability, uh, a greater judgment. And why is that? Because we all sin in many ways, and a teacher uses his tongue more than the average person. That leaves him more opportunities uh, to use the tongue in the wrong way. Listen to these words uh, spoken by Solomon, a very wise man. Proverbs 10:19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. In other words, the less you say, the less you have to answer for. The more you talk, the more you're going to have to give an answer for. Now, if I were to give you a main idea in one sentence that encapsulates all of chapter 3, I think it would be this. That if we grow in our walk of faith and arrive at spiritual maturity, the Holy Spirit gives us power over our tongue so that we speak words with wisdom from above, which brings a harvest of righteousness. Now, I know that's a mouthful there. But just let it digest for a minute. As I'm growing in faith and in my knowledge of the word of God, and I've raised the white flag, I'm yielded to the Lord. He is my Lord and he is my master. And I'm moving through life. As I grow in that, uh, in that walk of faith, then the Holy Spirit's going to give me what I can't control myself by my own sin nature. That is my, the use of my tongue. He says no man can do it. But the Holy Spirit can do it and will do it as we yield ourselves to him. And then as a result of that, out of me then comes words of wisdom. And then as a result of that, we have a harvest of righteousness. And that's what we all want. So let's move quickly through these. And we can summarize these 12 verses because there's six word pictures and uh, they're pretty easy to understand. And I've taken the six word pictures and brought them down into three categories so we can move through this uh, somewhat quickly, where we see a controlled tongue. So here's one of the things that he's going to talk to us about in this category. And he's going to talk about the tongue and its power to direct. It's the power to direct. He said, if we, verses 3 and 4, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. 
Look at the ships also. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Just think of how your words direct other people, especially those of you who are parents, uh, how your words are used to direct people. And we're doing that day in and day out. I read uh, for the first time last night about a Sunday school teacher by the name of Dorothea Chapp, and I'm going back uh, in the 1950s now, and she was just what you call an average Christian woman teaching uh, Sunday school in her local church, and she had a great burden for the high school uh, students down the street. And so she wanted to do everything she could to kind of give them some helpful direction. And one of the things she did, she went up to a, a young high school student named George, and she gave him a gospel John. She says, George, I'd like you to read this. It's going to tell you uh, how to go to heaven someday. And that was the last encounter she had with him at that point. And this uh, George read the Gospel of John and he got saved. That George was George Verwer. Now that may not mean uh, much to some of you, but George Verwer was, uh, in fact, he was a graduate in the same class as my wife back in Moody in 1961. And he went on to establish a missions organization called Operation More Mobilization all around the world. Today they've got 5,000 full-time workers spreading the gospel uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thinking to myself, all result of God using a woman with a heart for high school kids that simply gave him a gospel of John. Think of how she used that tongue to direct. Now, James gives us these two items, uh, the bits in the a mouth of horses and then the, the rudder on a ship to show how this little small instrument has great power just like the tongue. Did you know your tongue only weighs about two to three ounces? And did you know that your tongue makes up one-tenth of one percent of the average weight of a human being? One-tenth of one percent. Everything in your body almost weighs more than your tongue. But think of what the tongue can do and does. Think about the havoc it can wreak. And uh, think of what happens when uh, the tongue is either used in the right way or the poor way. A verse that came to me a few months ago in this study was another proverb. There's so much there in the Proverbs. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think about that. Every time I speak, as it were, I am either spewing out things that bring death, which means separation, not any value to it, or it's bringing life, it's bringing health, and it's bringing uh, that which is good. It has the power to direct. He goes to verse 5 and he says it has power to destroy. And in this imagery, James is used as fire and dangerous animals in the destruction they can cause. We've all, as soon as you turn on the newscast, if you do it tonight, you're going to see all the fires sweeping out there in the west. You're going to see destructive forces about uh, tornadoes and, and floods and all the damage they cause. Then if you keep on listening, you're going to read about dangerous animals. There's always specialists on, uh, on that as well, and that's what he's talking about. He says in verses 5 and 6, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among 
our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. And then he brings in the world of nature in verses 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed. We've all seen it at the circus. The, the cracking of the whip, the elephant that gets up, the lion that is tamed. And uh, it can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But verse 8, no human being, write that down. No human being can tame the tongue. It is restless evil, full of deadly poison. Boy, James just doesn't mince any words. There's not a person here, there's not a person in the world that can tame the tongue. The only one who can tame the tongue is God Almighty. And that's what I always say, as you're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and you're walking by faith and the Word of God is filling your heart and your mind and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, only then are you able, by His grace and power, to control the tongue. We've seen the alligators uh, in Florida killing people. We've seen the bears uh, that are loose attacking campers. And if you've ever been on a safari, you're warned not to leave your car to keep your windows up. And when I think about that, and I look back in my years of ministry, especially uh, as a pastor, uh, I can say this without any uh, hesitation, that I think the tongue has caused more harm in all the churches put together that I've been part of than the combination of every um, bad sinner, drug addict, alcoholic, immoral, thievery, or whatever. It's that person who claims to have wisdom, but the tongue is set on fire and so much harm has done daughter. So what can we do about that? What are you parents going to do about it with your children at home when you're raising? What are you going to do with you as grandparents with your grandchildren? Well, I was told a little formula about 30 years ago by a brother, and it's been a good one through the years. TKN. Now, I just want to, I should have put it all on the screen, but just imagine big capital letters, T-K-N. And then whenever one of your children, wife, husband, whoever, starts going down the wrong path, you just yell out the word T-K-N. And so what is T-K-N? T is, is it true? What's the second one? Is it kind? K. And then N, is it necessary? Just think about it. Is it true? Is it kind? And even if it's all that, is it really necessary? So this family, he was telling me, would the kids like to get into this game, TKN, TKN. So every time one in the family would start saying something they shouldn't say, kids would go, TKN, TKN, and everyone would stop doing what they're doing. And I thought, well, you know, wouldn't that be a good thing, a good rule to put around your dinner table some night? You'd probably have some pretty quiet dinners alone, uh, but that night might not be all bad either. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And I never come to this passage without the true story of the young teenager. Bullied, caught a different names, constantly going through that, unable to handle it. And something pushed her over the brink. And she went out and hanged herself. Young teenage kid. There's only one little note left behind. 
some would call it a suicide note, had two words on it. The two words were, somebody said. Somebody said. You say, well, what did they say? It doesn't say. Who said it? We don't know. Where was it said? We don't know. All we know is somebody said something, whatever that something was, that put her over the brink, and she went and hanged herself. Somebody said. We don't know what was said, but it pushed her over. Be careful. Be careful with what you say. Power to direct, power to destroy. Notice lastly, power to delight in verses 9 to 12. It has power to delight because the tongue has that strength within it. And with it, verse 9, we bless our Lord and Father. Just think of a few minutes ago when we were singing those songs, Christ is enough, I have decided to follow Jesus. Think of how God received that worship from your tongue that came from your heart and your mind this morning and how it lifted up the Lord and how he was praised. And we can do that with our tongue. We can console a hurting soul just by kind words, scriptural truths. We can lift up a downtrodden brother. We can offer hope to the prisoner, to the orphan, and to the widow. We can use our tongue to delight other people and encourage them. Some of you remember the name J. Vernon McGee. He had a radio broadcast all around the world a few years ago called Through the Bible. He was a wonderful Bible teacher from Texas. And he used to say in that southern drawl of his, he used to say, you know, it takes a two years for us to teach a child to talk, and then it takes the rest of their life to teach them how to keep their mouth shut and uh, say uh, and hold back on saying certain things, and that's so, that's so very true. I've got a, uh, I, I read some statistics here. The first one I read, it says, women talk more than men. Did you ever hear that before? And it, uh, it told almost twice as much. And then, ladies, you'll be glad to know, that study was taken apart. Not true. Okay? So then the other studies that have come up from places like Harvard and University of Arizona, what they say is men and women basically talk about the same. Do you know how many words they say the average, that would be you and me, human being speaks a day? The average number of words are between 15 to 16,000 words a day. That's how much we talk. And when I read that, then the first thing that came to my mind were the words of the Lord Jesus. For he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word. Other translation says every empty word, every idle word, yet another one, every useless word they speak. 15,000 words a day, say you live to be 70 years old. Think of what we're... I, I, when I preach on the judgment seat of Christ for believers, I've always thought it in the realm of our faithfulness primarily. I've always thought it in the realm of our works, and I've always even preached it, but without thinking about it that I'm going to give an account for my words. And just think of standing before the Lord and having all these words coming back that we've said to other people. One person shared with me after the 8.30 service, um, just a person they know that just is dying but has the most bitter spirit 
the most harsh words, angry words, and they're dying. What a tragedy. Be careful what you let your tongue say. How are you doing on test number one? How would your wife or husband grade you? How would your, ch- how would your children grade you? How would those who know you the best grade you on the test of words? Moving on to the next test, it's the test of wisdom, verses 13 to 18. John Wayne used to say, life is hard, but it's harder even when you're stupid. And I didn't like that. It sounded a little bit too uh, strong for me. So I say, we often say life is hard, but it's easier when you operate life on God's wisdom. I think you would agree with that, wouldn't you? Now, life is hard for all of us, not easy. But it's a little bit easier if we're living our life in this realm of God's wisdom. Problem is, a lot of people don't know where to find God's wisdom, but you and I do. And James told us that the first Sunday, didn't he? Chapter 1, verse 5. If any one of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, chapter 1, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and he upbraideth not. So that's where we get the wisdom, and we get it from God. Another place, by the way, when you get it from God, you get it from the Word of God. I've made it a habit for many years. Every so often, every month, I'll read through the book of Proverbs, one chapter a day. It's got 31 chapters, and you can cover the whole book every, uh, once a month as you want to do that. And there's so much wisdom in the, it's the book of wisdom, right? And it says so much, by the way, about the tongue and how we use our words. Now, here we're talking about wisdom, and uh, I can either operate my life on earthly wisdom or heavenly wisdom. I have a choice. And so I have to look and let James put, it, put the test to me. Is my life characterized by living in an earthly wisdom realm or a heavenly wisdom realm? He gives us two contrasts here. Notice them. First of all, the contrast in characteristics. And we're just going to have to do a skirt over this. As we summarize these verses in 13 to 18, earthly wisdom is characterized by selfishness that is sourced in earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Next slide. Uh, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, and it manifests itself in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Now, is that what you want to be characteristic of your life? But the heavenly wisdom is characterized by that in verse 17, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. So there's the contrast and the characteristics between uh, earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Then he deals with the contrast in, in consequences, And as a result of the choices we make, then wisdom results in disorder in every vile practice. Verse 16, next slide. While heavenly wisdom results in good conduct, works in the meekness of wisdom, verse 13. And what's the harvest? Look at verse 18. A harvest of righteousness, which is sown in peace by those who make peace. So at the beginning of the message, I said that the main idea in chapters 3 is as we grow... Uh, in this uh, walk of faith, and we arrive at some level of spiritual maturity, the Holy Spirit gives us power over our tongue, and we speak words of wisdom, which then brings a harvest of righteousness. And simply stated, the wise man, the wise woman, and a lot of you are there, I know you, A lot of people that run their life on heavenly wisdom, they've got a proper sense of values. They know how to prioritize things in life. 
and they know how to make their decisions accordingly. Or putting it in one sentence on the screen, wisdom is living life from God's perspective and acting on his principles. I mean, there it is. That's, that's real true wisdom, living your life from, what does that mean from God's perspective? That means even today what you're thinking of is you want your life to be lived from a heavenly, from a spiritual, and from an eternal perspective. Over against living it from an earthly, temporal uh, perspective instead of uh, in a, a physical perspective. And so you don't want that. You want to constantly be thinking about someday, you know, I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm going to give an account. So I want my life to be characterized by that which is heavenly. If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, for Christ sits at the right hand of God. So I'm constantly thinking I'm in the heavenly realm. I want to be a spiritual man. I want to be a person that thinks on eternal matters. How does what I'm doing today, how, what, what decisions I'm making today, make a difference 10,000 years from today? That's the person who operates his life according to wisdom. Now, I had the joy of being in a home, Muriel and I, for dinner Tuesday night uh, with the family. And uh, they're not from this church, by the way. Uh, but I've known them for a few years. They, they come down this summer. And um, the, the oldest, I would say, would be 60, 61 years old. The youngest would be one-year-old. So it was a mom and dad. Uh, it was a couple of daughters and a couple of sons-in-law. And then two little grandchildren ages one and three. And it was one of the most delightful evenings that Muriel and I can recall. The whole evening, if it lasted, I'll just say three hours. It was characterized, I didn't hear one unkind word. I didn't hear one sarcastic comment. I didn't hear one thing of anybody putting anybody down. Everything just, it just had a sweet aroma, as it were, from the scriptures of a life and a family that just are living a life of heavenly wisdom. And as a result of that, you got this beautiful harvest of righteousness coming about. And the whole evening was tapped off when uh, one of the young couples was getting the little girls to bed one and three years old. And the three-year-old came, we were still at the table talking, and the three-year-old came and said, Pastor, I said, yeah. She says, is it okay if we sing the doxology? I said, the doxology? She's three years old. Where'd that come from? So we sang the doxology. And then uh, she says, do you, do you know another song like the doxology that you could teach us? Where'd that come from? I said, did you ever hear of the glory of Patra? And the whole room said, no, two of them are trained musicians. Never heard of the, I said, you never heard of the glory of Patra? Right, Craig? Mount Lebanon, the United Presbyterian Church. We sang it every Sunday. Every Sunday. I'm going back 70 years. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, so now and ever shall be world without end. Amen, 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 amen. And we go through that glory, Patra. But it's a beautiful... And, and her little eyes just got big. And then the mom taped me singing. That was the, the worst mistake. I said, just Google it. But uh, I, I just... Ever since Tuesday, I'm thinking... 
What a beautiful family. And I've seen many of you the same way, uh, by the way, but that was just fresh on my mind. So let's pray that we walk by faith and our families are walking by faith. Now I've got to move quickly. Let's go to worldliness. Chapter 4. We're done with chapter 3. Words, wisdom. Now we go to worldliness. Um, and we're also going to be looking at the matter of the will of God. So what is worldliness? How do we, how do we even define it? How do we, do we look at it? Uh, worldliness in a lot of people's minds, it's characterized by certain external factors that a person does do or doesn't do, and we say, well, he or she is a worldly Christian. But uh, I'm looking here at verses 1 to 4, because whatever this worldliness is, it's clear that it's contrary to the life of faith. Whatever it is, it's totally contrary to the person who walks by faith. Listen to verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, we read those words, and probably most of us are thinking about the headlines on probably every newspaper today. We're thinking of world events. We're thinking of Afghanistan, and well, we shouldn't be praying for that. We're thinking of the Middle East. We're thinking of Christians in northern Nigeria and the mutilation taking place there. And so much is going around. But I want to remind you, James is talking to Christians. He's talking to brethren. He's not talking to secular leaders. He's talking to these very Christians when he started addressing the letter, my brethren. Those are the same people to whom he's talking. And I think the whole book is a, a book of edification, not a book for evangelism as such. It deals with my Christian wolf and walking by faith. Let's look at the root of, of worldliness and just make sure that we can uh, understand it. If I were to summarize what worldliness is, it is seeing everything in life as it revolves around oneself. It's totally a self-absorbed, self-centered life. That's worldliness. And because people are worldly and self-centered, everyone wants their own way. Remember Rodney King, the name, 30 years ago this past March when he was beaten? He was taken down. He was driving at a high speed. Uh, on the uh, Interstate 210 outside of L.A., and uh, then he resisted a little bit, but then he was beaten and made all the front-page news. Everybody knows the name, if, if they're living 30 years ago, Rodney King. And then I remember, the words I remember of Rodney King, I remember just when, uh, in, a, in a gentle tone, he just said, can't we all get along? Remember those words? Can't we all get along? And you know the truth of the matter is we can't get along. Just look at the world we live in. Look at the politics of the day. Look at the countries. Look at how we talk about each other and talk to each other. And if you don't agree with me, I put you down. It's not just tolerance. It's not just accepting. You've got to agree with me. Because worldliness is total self-centeredness. It's putting you at the center of everything. You can even be a, 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 a believer who prays and be a worldly Christian. Someone said, there's a prayer warrior, and you can be a worldly Christian. Notice what he says here in verses 2 and 3. You do not have because you do not ask. That is, you, you're a Christian, you're a brother, but you're not even praying. 
You ask, then you do pray, and you don't receive why you ask wrongly that you may spend it on your passions. You're still self-centered. That's what worldliness is. It's called worldly because the world can never put God first. John the Apostle wrote about it. Remember 1 John chapter 2. Love not the world, verse 15. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of, uh, of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. That's worldliness. It's selfishness. Comes out of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and my ego, the pride of life. And it's pretty ugly. It gets uglier. As strong as John was, look at James' words, would you? Let them, uh, let them sink into you. Verse 4, if I'm a worldly believer, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? That's going back, excuse me, chapter 2, chapter 4, uh, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Who here wants to be called an adulteress? Who here wants to be called an enemy of God? Who wants to be said of you, you've declared war on God? But that's the worldly Christian he's talking about. That's the brothers, that's the sisters. What's the remedy for worldliness? Verses 6 to 12. It's basically one remedy, and we've been covering it the whole service. The white flag. The surrender. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's the surrender. Surrender to the Lordship of Christ. James tells us to do several things as he begins, and I've taken all these and just condensed them into five quick things that he wants us to do. Let me just start back at verse 4, if I may. And notice again what he's saying there, you adulterous people. That's an unfaithful person. Think about those, and some of you have gone through this, who have had an unfaithful spouse. Your husband's unfaithful. Your wife was unfaithful. What might a wife say that knows that her husband has had an affair with somebody else? Eventually, she'll probably say, you make a choice. See it up there? Choose, make a choice. It's either her or it's me. That comes out of a jealousy. That is good jealousy. God is a jealous God, it says throughout the Scriptures. God is jealous for you. What is God's jealousy? It's when something that God owns that is his, that then is taken away or for what is pulled away from him. So whether it's jealousy over the nation of Israel or a, 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 an unbeliever or whatever, the somebody that is owned by God and suddenly somebody has taken him away, God is a jealous God. What's that wife saying? You're my husband. We made a vow. And I'm jealous. So choose sides. Number two, pursue God. Look at verses seven and eight. 
Boy, every one of these is a sermon in itself. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Do you feel distant from God? Do you think you're just going to sit back and say, yeah, sorry about that? And God's going to pursue you and all of a sudden you're going to get a warm, fuzzy feeling? It's not going to happen that way. He says, pursue God. How much do you want that relationship to be what you want it to be? You pursue God. And if you pursue God, He will honor that. But it's not just sitting back. Verse 8b, clean up your life. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Woe. Hands represent the outside. Heart represents the inside. Hands represent the sins of the flesh. The heart represents the sins of the spirit. Whatever it is, got to make a choice. You're going to pursue God. And you're going to have to ask God to clean up your life. Your hands, your heart. Verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. When's the last time you mourned and wept? When I got saved, I remember how it just, it was, it was just so hard to realize for the first time in 21 years that I had believed Christ died for the sins of the world that it dawned on me I killed Jesus. I killed him. My sins put him on the cross. And I sobbed for an hour. Bless his old heart, the digging didn't know what to handle with this nutcase. I couldn't stop sobbing. I don't mean I was crying, I just couldn't stop. I nailed him to the cross. I crucified God. And when I sin as a Christian since then, it is so easy. I confess my sin. Sorry about it, Lord. Please forgive me for my sin. Up and go on my way. Maybe we don't know too much about weeping and mourning. Those who mourn are blessed, for they shall be comforted. Then he says, humble yourself. That's the deep sense of littleness. Affects the changes we make. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He'll exalt you. Test number three, worldliness. Now let's close it out. The test number four. We go to the will of God, verses 13 to 17. The subject of the will of God stands in stark contrast to worldliness. Because if worldliness is self-centered, then the will of God is Christ-centered. Three things I just want to share very briefly and then we're done about the will of God. Verse 13, be surrendered to the Lord, not self-assertive. I got to assert myself, then you're a fool. I got to assert myself, then you're operating on the wisdom of this earth. 
Be surrendered to the Lord, not self-assertive. Look at verse 13, what he says. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Here's a concise picture of a successful businessman. He's got a plan. What's the plan? Today or tomorrow we're going to travel. Uh, Storms coming today, maybe I'll go out of town tomorrow. He has a place in mind to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade. He's going to open up a new market. So he's got a plan in mind. He has a place in mind. What are you doing? Why Why are you doing that? He intends to make a profit. Notice, and to trade and make a profit. Why make plans and why take a trip and why stay in a place a year if you don't plan to make a profit? Show me a businessman that doesn't want to make a profit and I'll show you a businessman that's going to be out of business pretty soon. That's why he's in business. And he's got a plan and a place and he's going to make a profit. You say, well, then what's, what's the problem? The man's a fool. Why is he a fool? Because he has a plan, but he left God out of it. He's got a place, but he left God out of it. He's going to make a profit, but he has no thoughts about God in it. That's why he's a fool. And it reminds us of the parable Jesus told us about that man that was going to build bigger and bigger barns. Thou fool, he said, tonight your soul shall be required of thee. Number two, be assured of his plan, not self-confident. Be assured of his plan, not self-confident. So you've got to be surrendered to the Lord and not self-assertive. And you've got to be assured of his plan, not self-confident. Verses 14 and 15, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You know, pride can be as much in the face of God as saying, I just don't believe in you, God. I don't believe in you, Christ. And I think your word is a bunch of bunk. It can be just that, that, that vocal. Or it can be very subtle. On Labor Day weekend, I'm going to Virginia to see my children. Fool. Just a little more subtle. James says, don't be sure. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills and we live, I'm going to go to Virginia on Labor Day weekend to see my children. James' point is that God rules over whether you get to Virginia or whether you're even alive at the end of this sermon in about three minutes. That's how uncertain life is. The uncertainty of life. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. You don't know what a day brings forth. Then the brevity of life. James reminds us life is like a vapor. It's like the morning fog. Peers and go- you want to be humbled? And do you want to see your life in eternal perspective? Do what I do. I visit cemeteries, and I go and I look at the t- stones of people, and then I'll, I don't even know, don't know hardly, probably none of them. And I see a date of birth, and I see a dash, and I see a date of death. Two dates and a dash. Your life is that dash. How humbling is that? All your life is is a dash. You're here and you're gone. Few people mourn, people who grieve. Some people might remember you 10 years, 20 years from now after you're dead. Most people could care less. Life just goes on. That's just the way it is. 
uncertainty of life, the brevity of life. Sportscaster Dan Patrick once remarked about an injured player. He's listed as day-to-day, and then he added this wise comment, and I don't even know anything about Dan Patrick, but I do know he added a wise contract. He's listed as day-to-day, but then again, aren't we all? What a wise word. Aren't we all? I know some of you weary of me saying, Lord willing. I know that, okay? And I understand that. I try to hold myself back, but I can't sometimes. But even if I don't say it out loud, I'm telling you, that's what I'm thinking in my heart. Let's have dinner next week. Fine, Lord willing. You get so tired of that. It's not a magical charm. It's a biblical truth. It's presumptuous to say what you're going to do or where you're going to go. James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do such a... Lastly, and we're done, be committed to his will, not self-centered. Be committed to his will, not self-centered. Because James says the root cause of all this self-willed individual is pride, arrogance, and downright sinful. Listen to verses 16 and 17. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do, walk by faith, live from an eternal, heavenly, spiritual perspective. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. I mentioned back in December when we were talking about some of the humanitarian things that uh, God's people have been involved in, the name Dr. Bob Pierce, who found a world vision, a humanitarian agent that continues to help hurting people throughout the world. He had a prayer that I think was really full of wisdom. Early on, he learned this, he said. As it is, he says, uh, Lord, I give you the right to change my agenda anytime you like without informing me in advance. Isn't that good? I give you the right to change my agenda anytime you like without informing me in advance. You don't need my okay, Lord. I'm going to Asia to preach the gospel. God says, no, you're not. Not now. Well, in that case, I'm going into Bithynia, the Balkans. And no, you're not, Paul. What am I going to do, Lord? And then there came the vision from Macedonia. Come over and help us. Aren't we glad Paul went over to Macedonia? Because that's why you're sitting here today. Because the gospel went to Europe, and then from Europe, the gospel came to America. By the way, Paul did go to Asia, and he did go to Bithynia but not until it was the Lord's timing. If I'm unhappy, if I don't have the joy of the Lord, it's because I haven't surrendered to his sovereignty. One last thing and I'm I'm done. Hold lightly what you value greatly. What do you value the most? So, well, my children, yeah. What, my grandchildren, yeah. Hold it lightly. They're not yours. At any time, God can say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Hold lightly about your plans and your dreams because you don't control the future. Not wrong to have some life goals. Just hold them lightly because God has the right to interrupt your life at any time. We've all seen the advertisement, right? You're in good hands with Allstate. I don't know, maybe that's true, insurance-wise. But I like what I was reminded of last night back in 1971. 
Put your hands in the hand of the one who calms the water. Put your hands in the hands of the one, and you know the song. In other words, the place to put your hands in good hands are the omnipotent hands of God Almighty. White flag, let's raise it. I surrender, Lord. Let's say, Lord, I'm committed. I'm pressing on. I've decided to follow you, and I'm not looking back.